The following lecture was delivered at the 10th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Dr. Lisa Aiken will now present a lecture entitled, What Does Archaeology Say About the Torah? What Does the Torah Say About Archaeology? The talk I'm giving this afternoon was actually born out of uh, taking the tour guiding course in Israel and being very dismayed to hear how, what I would say, anti-religious the general tour guiding course to Israel is. Um, during the course, we were told by a number of people that there was no Abraham, there was no conquest of the land of Israel as it was described in the Bible, and over and over again, we were hearing that all of these biblical stories were um, anachronistic, they were made up, they didn't happen the way that they were supposedly described in the Bible. And so what I decided to do was to try to look at evidence that would show if there was any authenticity to the stories that we read year by year in our Tanakh. I also came across the fact that many people think that archaeology is a science. It is not. As one of my tour guiding colleagues says, one of the best kinds of exercise archaeologists get is jumping to conclusions. <laughs> Without going into all of the problems of archaeology, I just want to mention that very often people have had ideas about what archaeology should look like and what stories it should be telling, and then they try to fit the facts to fit into what they already believe. So in Israel specifically, there's a very strong voice to what I will call left-wing archaeologists, secular archaeologists, who believe that the Torah will tell them where to dig and what to find, and then when they find it, they totally discredit the Torah for having any authenticity. So just to give you an idea of one of the major problems that I find with archaeology is that if an archaeologist really wants to be objective, they should try to use whatever scientific ideas they are supposed to be basing their studies on. And then if facts come up or if uh, information comes up that casts uh, doubt on those hypotheses, they should change them according to what is found later. Unfortunately, this often doesn't happen. And these theories become impervious to new uh, finds and to new information that is literally dug up. Um, I'm not going to go into more background than that, but I just want to say one last piece about the whole issue of um, higher biblical criticism. When I went to Tel Aviv University during the Paleolithic age, the way they taught about the Torah at Tel Aviv University was from the point of view of higher biblical criticism. This theory was begun in the, in the 1800s by an anti-Semitic Protestant minister named Wellhausen who had an axe to grind with Judaism. And his axe to grind with Judaism was to try to discredit the Torah by saying that there were four different authors of the Torah. And then there was a fifth person who redacted the Torah. And unlike what we say in Judaism, which is that the Torah was given by God to the Jewish people via Moses about uh, 1300 BCE, that according to him, the Torah was written in bits and pieces over a period of time, and the latest piece of it was the book of Deuteronomy, or Devarim, 
which was only written perhaps as late as the time of the Maccabees, which was the second century before the Common Era. So we have all kinds of little problems that they find with the different names of God. For example, if you read in the book of Genesis, the beginning of Genesis talks about Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. The beginning, God, with the name Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. You go through the whole first creation story, only the name Elohim is used. The second creation story, in case you're not aware of it, there are two creation stories in the book of Genesis, uses the name Hashem Elohim. So these brilliant uh, Bible critics determined from this that the Jews believed in two separate gods. One was named Hashem and one was named Elohim. And every time you have one name of God being used, it's one author, and the other name of God being used, it's a second author. So it never occurred to them to think the way that you and I would normally speak, which is that when we talk about God, I had a teacher who used to say God has 70 names and they're not for tax purposes. The different names of God that we use are there to describe God in different ways that we perceive him, not that God is being a different God. For example, the name Hashem is the God as he's manifesting compassion to us. The name Elohim is the God of judgment or the God of nature. And we have the same thing in our human relationships. So it would make a lot of sense that whoever wrote the Bible, and of course we believe it was God, is using different names to describe different relationships that we experience with God at different times. So for example, I don't know if any of you have ever known a guy named William. Any of you know a guy named William? So what does his mother call him? Probably Billy, right? He could be 65 years old and she's 85, he's still Billy, right? So he's Billy, and to his teachers, or his teachers, he might be Mr. Holtz, and to his friends, he might be Will, and to his boss, he might be something else, and to his wife, he's Honey. Okay, does that mean that there are seven different people here in one body? No. We're using different names to describe different relationships. And of course, to his son, he's dad. So the Torah does exactly the same thing. So in archaeology, there's a premise among many archaeologists that the Torah was made up by a lot of different people, and they weren't too careful about many details. And therefore, we have a lot of mistakes in the Torah, and in some cases, we have no evidence at all that these stories took place. There's a whole school of archaeology where the belief is that the Jews made up a glorious history for themselves because that's what they felt like doing. So what I'd like to do this afternoon is to take a look at some of the ideas in archaeology and try to compare and contrast them with things that we find in our Bible and see what conclusions we'd like to come to at the end of the, of the, end of the talk. All right, so... <clears throat> Um, one of the problems with the, the uh, dating of the Exodus, which is about the time that the Torah was given, is that according to archaeologists, the Jews left Egypt in the year 1250 before the Common Era. Where did they get this from? When did Jews say the Exodus occurred? Anybody know? Around the year 1313, before the Common Era. 1313, 1312, before the Common Era. So how do we figure this out? Do you know we are the only people in the world that have a continuous history 
from the creation of first man Adam till the present, there is no other civilization in the world that has a continuous history. And we have this continuous history through a book called Seder Olam. How do archaeologists come to decide when anything is dated when you go back into ancient times? Well, what they do is they kind of look at some of the Babylonian records where they talk about solar eclipses and lunar eclipses, and they go back into some of the Egyptian records where they have dynasties of some of the pharaohs, and they try to intersect them to try to figure out who was doing what, when, and where. And the problem is that they really don't have a totally coherent history. They won't tell you that, but I'm telling you that. And just as an aside, before I go further, and I'm not going to get into this in much detail today, I don't want to blow anybody's mind too much, but according to Jewish history, we have a serious problem. Because in Jewish history, if you go according to Seder Olam, we have 167 years of missing history. What does that mean? It means that if we go back and we look at secular dating of the time the Jews left Egypt and the time they came into the land of Israel, they say the Jews left Egypt around the year 1250 before the Common Era. How long were the Jews in the desert? They use our Torah to tell them 40 years. But then they run away from Torah again to some other dating. There was something called a Merneptha Stella. The Merneptha Stella was found in Egypt, and it dates back to the year 1208 before the Common Era. And it talks about how different things are happening in the land of Canaan. And there are these people called Hibiru who are conquering the land. Sound familiar? So they assume that that must be the year that the Jews came into the land of Israel. They will not come to the conclusion that the Jews have been there for a long time, and there were some battles going on that were troubling the Egyptians at that time. Now, that's how they date backwards to 1250, that the Jews must have left Egypt at that time. We say the Jews left Egypt about 60 years earlier. Okay, so then they go back and forth between the Torah and their different archaeological finds, and they decide that the temple, the first temple was built around the year 965 before the Common Era. The Talmud tells us that the first temple lasted for 410 years, and the second temple lasted for 420 years. So let's say we use secular dating, and the first temple lasted 410 years, and it was built in 965. When was it destroyed? Somebody do the math, please. 965 minus 410. When was the temple destroyed? 555. You will never, ever hear a secular historian or archaeologist say the temple was destroyed in 555. We all know the date it was destroyed by the Babylonians was 586. So they're going to jump back and forth between Jewish records and their own belief system with the archaeological finds to decide when the, when the different uh, temples were destroyed. Okay, the, the Tanakh tells us that the first temple, the Jews were exiled. They were in exile for how many years? Seventy years. They came back to the land of Israel. They built the second temple. Seventy from 586 is when? 516. The, the Talmud says the second temple stood for 420 years. Roughly what year would it then have been destroyed? Before the Common Era, 100 before the Common Era. When was the temple really destroyed? The year 70. 
So we have a lot of fun and games here, don't we? You should just be aware of the fact that according to Jewish dating, the second temple was not built until the year roughly 350 before the Common Era, and it was destroyed in the year 70 of the Common Era. So how do we have this gap of 167 years? You'll have to book me to come and speak in your community if you want to hear the answer to that one. Okay, but just that you should be aware that the dating of the two systems can be quite divergent, and they're using very different ways of determining when things happen. All right, with that as background, I'd like to go back to the idea of the documentary hypothesis that says that all these different people wrote the Torah at different times. How many of you have been to Jerusalem, to the Begin Center? How many of you know where the Begin Center is? Okay. In Jerusalem, not far from the old city, is a museum of Menachem Begin's life. Just behind that Begin Center, many people aren't even, aren't even aware of this. Once upon a time, there was a piece of ground that had something that looked like stone in it. And there was a graduate student named Gabi Barkai, who today is a very well-known archaeologist, who noticed that that rock had been worked with metal tools. And he brought a bunch of people over there to start uncovering what was there. When he realized that these were tombs that went back a long, long time, he had them excavated. And what they found was that these tombs had writings in it that dated back to the time of Jeremiah the prophet, not Jeremiah the bullfrog. Jeremiah, or Yirmiyahu, lived around the 6th century before the Common Era, and now I'm using secular dating so as not to totally confuse you. One of the, there were two things in particular that were found in these caves. They had 150 intact pottery vessels. They had silver earrings from women, the same kind that Yeshaya the prophet was castigating the women of Jerusalem for wearing. You're walking around, prancing around in these beautiful silver earrings, and yet you're not taking care of the poor and the orphan and the widow. They found these kinds of earrings in those caves. They found jewelry. But they also found two little strange objects that looked like rolled-up cigarette butts made out of purple silver. And when they finally unrolled these, they found that they had on them birkat kohanim, this was Birkat Kohanim dating back 2,600 years. Birkat Kohanim appears in the Torah when? In the Parshat Emor, in the Book of Numbers. So all of a sudden, this find should have told archaeologists and people with a documentary hypothesis that the Book of Numbers was around from at least the 6th century before the Common Era. Of course, we as traditional Jews believe it was from the 13th century before the Common Era. Did they change their hypothesis when this was found? Absolutely not. They decided to make up some other stories. Then a woman from the university in, in California called Gabi Barkai in the 1990s and said to him, these finds were made in the 1970s, she said, you know, you didn't have technology then that we have today but I'd like to look at those silver amulets that had the priestly blessing on them and see what I find. According to Wellhausen's theory in the documentary hypothesis, when was the book of Deuteronomy written? Time of the Maccabees, long after the Jews were exiled, long after the time of Jeremiah. Guess what she found on the back of one of these amulets that had writing from the book of Numbers on it? 
a verse from the book of Deuteronomy. If the book of Deuteronomy only existed 300 years later, there's a problem here. Do you think that they revised their theory to say, whoa, the book of Deuteronomy must have been written hundreds of years before we thought so? Not a chance. So this is what we're dealing with with a lot of the archaeological theories that people put out there. Okay, let's go into the book of Bereshit, because I think this is really fascinating. For the most part, archaeologists will tell you there's very little evidence of any of the stories in the book of Bereshit. But let's see if that's really true or not. So let's talk about Avraham. You know this guy Abraham? Where did he live? Or. Okay. Okay, thank you. Or Kastim in Hebrew. So the, um, the archaeologists have actually excavated Or long time ago. How many of you think of sort of Abraham as living like one of the Flintstones? Right? I mean, really very primitive people. They have these little stone tools, nothing so interesting, no society, no technology. Let me tell you about what these archaeologists found in the metropolis of Or. How many people do you think lived in Or in Abraham's time? A couple thousand, two thousand maybe? You think less? More. How many do you think? 50,000. Okay, so Or itself had 4,000 homes. Archaeologists estimate it had about 35,000 inhabitants. And in the metropolitan area, they believe there are at least another quarter of a million people. Okay, this was a very developed society. We have records, one bookkeeping system alone has records of trading a quarter of a million sheep and 20, uh, sorry, 350,000 sheep and 28,000 cattle in one year alone. They were doing business 1,000, 1,500 miles away. They were importing things like lapis lazuli, which was a very precious stone in those days. They had a developed textile industry with 9,000 workers. One plant alone in Ore made 12 different kinds of textiles. Not exactly what we usually think of when we think about the time of Abraham. So the world that Avraham grew up in is the world in the time of the Tower of Babel, or the Tower of Babel. These people were idolatrous because they believed that the gods would bless them if they worshipped the idols. And look at how true it was. Look at how well it worked. They were a very prosperous society, so they stuck with winners. Secular archaeologists say that Avram could not have lived in ur because there were no Chaldeans or Kastim in Mesopotamia, which is where the city of Ur was. Religious archaeologists point out that Avram could easily have lived in another city called Ur, which was hundreds of miles away from the Ur of Mesopotamia. Interestingly, when Teroth moved Avraham and the rest of his family to Haran, it was only about 60 miles away from that Ur. The, same, the main god of that city was a moon god. So let's fast forward. Avraham moves to Israel with his wife, Sarai, and his nephew, Lot. Um, 
Why did he, when he moves to Israel, what does he find as soon as he comes to the country? A famine. A famine happens when there's a drought. There's not enough rain. So God tells the Jewish people many times that the land of Canaan or the land of Israel is not like the lands that they knew, like Egypt, where what happens every year? The Nile overflows. We have to be good boys and good girls to get God's bounty in the land of Israel. So we also find that the land of Israel was smack dab in the middle of, seems like nothing, doesn't it? Desert here, desert there. Like, what do we have in Israel? We don't have diamonds. We don't have gold. Why did God stick us in this place? Do you understand the bigger picture? Israel is the land bridge between Mesopotamia and Egypt, the two superpowers of the ancient world. We have trade routes in Israel today that are covered by modern roads that are 4,000 years old. They went from Syria and Damascus through the land of Israel. On the northern side, they went up to Mesopotamia. On the southern side, they went down to Egypt. In later years, we're also the land bridge that goes to Europe. We are literally at the crossroads of the ancient world. The idea being, we have all these stories about Abraham pitching his tent and bringing in wayfarers. People didn't travel for pleasure in those days, folks. Why did they travel? Trade. So he was getting all these traders to come into his tent, and he was teaching them about God. He was teaching them about ethical monotheism. What better place for the Jews to influence the entire road, the entire world, than in the crossroads of the ancient world of traders and merchants. Keep in mind that a lot of the people traveling through Israel are going to be merchants, because it's going to come up a few more times this afternoon. Okay, so according to uh, many people, we have no evidence that Abraham ever existed. However, the Egyptian king Sheshank, who's called Sheshak in the book of Malachim or Kings, recorded his conquest of a part of Judea node as the field of Abram. And um, this was during the fifth year of Rehavam's reign. This is one of the places that Genesis records that Avraham lived. There is a historian named Nicolaus who educated the children of two people that you're very familiar with, Anthony and Cleopatra. He also educated King Herod's kids in the first century before the Common Era. Josephus quotes Nicolaus as having written, Abram reigned at Damascus, a foreigner who came with an army out of the land above Babylonia, called the land of the Chaldeans. After a long time, he got up, went into the land called Canaan, where his posterity became a multitude. The name of Abram is still famous in our, in our land of Damascus. A village is named after him and called the dwelling place of Abram. Nicolaus's report coincides with the Torah's account of Abraham's life. The dwelling place of Abram and the field of Abram are two different places in the Fertile Crescent where Abraham lived. In the 20th century, people who lived in towns near Haran, uh, both of these were places where Avram's family lived. Uh, Haran was his brother, as well as a place name. And um, they still regarded Abraham as a saint and told many stories about him. This is 3,800 years later. Abraham was known to the ancient Hebrews as well as to many non-Jewish historians. 
The latter had great regard for his intellectual abilities and leadership. Hecateus, who lived during the time of Alexander the Great, we're talking about um, 300 before the Common Era, uh, uh, 300s before the Common Era, um, he wrote an entire book about Avraham. There's another guy named Berosus, who was a third century Babylonian priest and historian. He wrote in the 10th generation after the flood, again, he's not Jewish, 10th generation after the flood, a great and righteous man was among the Chaldeans who was skilled in celestial sciences. Bereshit says that Avraham lived 10 generations after the flood, and ancient Jewish traditions say that Avraham was an intellectual who had a great knowledge of astronomy. Josephus, who was a, a Jewish, later Roman historian, who lived in the first century, noted at least eight Greek scholars who wrote about Avraham's life. Josephus, Josephus himself wrote an account based on the Greek writings of Avraham's effect on the Egyptians when he stayed in their country during this drought that I just mentioned a few minutes ago. Josephus wrote that Pharaoh allowed Abraham to converse with the most learned Egyptians, and Avram refuted their arguments featuring uh, paganism, favoring paganism. He achieved a reputation as a very wise man. He taught them arithmetic and astronomy, from whom the Greeks subsequently learned both. How's that for a surprise? Okay, let's go a little further in the Abraham story. He comes with his wife, Sarai, and they go down to Egypt. What does Abraham tell Pharaoh this woman with him is? His sister. How in the world could Abraham tell such a bald-faced lie? Well, archaeologists have uncovered a civilization called Mari that was near where Abraham lived before coming to Israel. They found documents in Mari that explained that wives could not inherit. So their husbands made them into legal sisters who could inherit them. So in addition to Sarai being Avraham's niece, she may legally, although not biologically, have been his sister. A few sentences later in the Chumash, we find a story of a war of five kings versus four kings. The uh, ancient records tell us two things about this war. One is the names of two of those kings who fought among the five. One is Kedarla Omer and his son. Secondly, this story is the only time in history that there was such a confederation that is described in the Chumash. If the people that wrote the Bible lived thousands of years later, they never would have imagined in a million years that this was the political structure of the time because it was quite short-lived. A short time after the war between these five kings versus the four kings, the political structure of the region had so changed that it was now city-states and not confederations of rulers. It's interesting that in this story, how is the war won? What happens to the, uh, the, the four kings? They get stuck in tar pits. How many of you have ever seen tar pits outside of Los Angeles' La Brea area? Right? Like what fanciful imagination conjured up these tar pits? And by the way, where is this war being fought? Near the Dead Sea. So what you probably don't know is the Dead Sea started to change in the 1950s. Uh, 1964, Israel built a water carrier, national water carrier. Today, 93% of the water that should flow into the Dead Sea is siphoned off about 
50% or so goes to Israel, about 40% goes to Jordan. I'm not, I'm not sure what happens to the rest of it. But in any case, only 7% of the water that would otherwise be flowing into the Dead Sea goes in there today. That's why the Dead Sea has already lost one-third of its volume. So in ancient times, there would be some years where you have more water and some years where you have less water. With all that water flowing into the Dead Sea, you have some places where the Dead Sea expands over the banks and some places where it constricts. It happens if you ever go down to a place called Arad, near modern-day Arad are two tells, two archaeological mounds, one from the time of King Solomon and one predating the time of Abraham. Abraham was living around 1800s before the Common Era, in the 19th century before the Common Era. This goes back a few hundred years before that. And there were people that settled in this Tel Arad, and the archaeologists couldn't imagine for the life of them. Why were these people settled in such a horribly hot place with no springs around? It's not easy to get water there. What were they doing in the middle of nowhere? Well, it turned out they were taking bitumen, in English we call it tar, from the Dead Sea area. Because at that time, these pits were exposed, they were able to take the bitumen and they sent it down to Egypt for use in the mummification process that the Egyptians used. This went on for quite a long time. At a certain point in time, nobody really knows why, people in Arad closed up shop and they left. Apparently during the time of Abraham, these tar pits were once again exposed and the kings who were not so familiar with the area fell into them and lost the war. Okay, if you read carefully, during this war of the five kings versus the four kings, Abraham comes to rescue his son, his nephew, Lot. How big an army does he come with? 318 men. Give me a break. You call this an army? We call these Boy Scouts. Like, who are we trying to kid here? So lots of people used to make fun of this as obviously anachronistic. Who would imagine calling an army 318 people? Well, then the archaeologists started doing some research, and you know what they found? How big was a typical army in the time of Abraham? A hundred men. So 318 men was a huge army. And so it's no joke that when he came with 318 men, it was not hard for him to vanquish the kings. Next thing we have is Abraham takes his nephew Lot up to a place called Laish. Anybody know where Laish is today? We call it Tel Don. It's a little bit south of the border with Lebanon. If you go to Tel Don today, it's a beautiful nature reserve in Israel. And part of the park, they actually exposed the city of Laish. And there are two places in Israel that have the oldest arches in the world. The Romans did not invent the arch. The oldest arches in the world come from Israel. They predated the Roman arches by... I think a thousand years. The time of Abraham, there are two places in Israel that have arches dating back 3,800 years. One of them is in Ashkelon, and the other one is in Teldon, or Laish. We can actually see the steps that Abraham walked up to go into the city gates of Laish when he captured Lot. Okay, after Abraham left Laish, he went to a city called Shalem where a man named Malki Tzedek came out to greet him with bread and wine. That is where, anybody know where, where uh, Shalem is today? 
Yerushalayim, but specifically the Shalain part was where the city of David is today. Now, if you go into the city of David, we know that there was a huge, massive tower, a fortress protecting the water source of ancient Jerusalem. The city gate that Malkit Tzedek walked out of was very close to that huge fortress gate that we can see in the city of David today. A few years later, Isaac is now 40 years old. Abraham sends out his trusted servant Eliezer to go find a wife for Yitzchak. Right? This is a big singles party. What does he send with Eliezer? He sends gold and silver and camels. Any archaeologist worth his salt will tell you this is an anachronism. Nobody had domesticated camels in the time of Abraham. The person who wrote this obviously lived at least 800 years later because there's no written record of trading camels until the 11th century before the Common Era. There's just one problem. In 1912, somebody found a wall painting down near Aswan with hieroglyphics showing a man with a camel, with a rope around the camel's neck, walking with the camel. When I mentioned this to several archaeologists, they said, well, you can't count on that as evidence of anything. I mean, he could have been walking with anything. I mean, just because it looked like a camel doesn't mean it was a domesticated camel. I said, the camel wasn't showing signs of forced entry. I mean, give me a break. Okay, there are two signs, two kinds of camels. There are Bactrian camels and dromedaries. I'm sure you'd have come here to get a lesson in uh, these kinds of animals. But in any case, the Bactrian camels are the Asian camels, and we have evidence that they were domesticated around the year 2200 before the Common Era. The dromedaries, we have evidence from this uh, painting in Aswan that predate Abraham by at least 400 years. Most likely what happened with camels in Abraham's time, why is the Torah listing all these things that Eliezer is taking because he is a very wealthy man, and probably only very, very wealthy people had camels at that time. It took much longer for the typical person to be able to afford a camel and for them to be largely domesticated. Okay. After Sarah dies, Avram buys the cave of Machpelah from who? What is it called? Ephron the? The? The Hittite. Where did the Hittites live? Turkey. What is a guy from Turkey doing down in Hebron? Clearly this is anachronistic, right? No, it's true. We have evidence that these Hittites came down from Turkey and they in fact were in charge of Hebron at the time that Avram bought the cave of Machpelah. Nobody living a 1,000 years or 1,500 years later would have possibly known that. So only someone who lived contemporaneous or who had knowledge of this from some other source would be able to say that he bought it from a Hittite instead of a Canaanite. The Torah repeatedly talks about the forefathers going up and down the land of Israel. They go from Damascus, they go to Shechem, they come down past Beit El, they go past Jerusalem, they go down to, uh, to Hebron, they go down to Beersheba. This, by the way, is one of the three main trading routes in ancient Israel. 
Do you remember the story when the Jews leave Egypt? God says that the Jews didn't go Derech Eretz Pelishtim. They didn't go by way of the Philistines. What was the way of the Philistines? It's what we call the coastal highway. So when you go from Egypt and you go up the coast of Gaza to Ashkelon to Ashdod, that is a road that goes back 4,000 years. It's the way of the police team. The police team lived there for a very long time. We'll come back to the police team later. If you continue, a second road is the way of the kings, the royal highway. The royal highway is where the Jews tell the king of Edom, we're going to stay on the highway. We're not going to go into your country and bother you. That today is the road that parallels road 90 on the Jordanian side. It goes down to Aqaba, goes up the Arava Valley, and continues up on the, on the western side of the Dead Sea. That king's highway is 4,000 years old. Then we have what today in Israel is road 60. That's paved on top of 4,000 years of history. And that goes from Shechem down through Beit El, down through, um, second, where else does it go? Can't remember the other place it goes. Then it goes past Jerusalem, down to uh, Bethlehem, Hebron, and down to Beersheba. We call that today the path of the patriarchs. And we've actually excavated in Israel the Roman road that sits on top of the ancient road that goes back to the time of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Okay, let's talk about the police team. Any archaeologist will tell you this is another anachronism. There were no police team in Israel until the 12th century before the Common Era. How do we know that? Because there's a stone picture that was found in an, an Egyptian temple showing sea people coming from the area near Crete attacking the Egyptians, and this attack is dated to the mid-1100s before the Common Era. The inscription describes these people as Pilashtu, Philistines. So clearly the archaeologists understand from this that there could not possibly have been Philistines in Israel before the 1100s. Well, Tanakh and archaeology agree about many aspects of who these latter team were. Uh, the book of Jeremiah describes them as people who came by sea from Crete. The book of Samuel repeatedly tells us that the Philistines had iron armor and metal weapons of war, while the Jews did not. This is corroborated by archaeological discoveries that show that the Iron Age did not come to the Jews in Israel before King David was the king, while the Philistine sites show earlier knowledge and use of metallurgy. This put the Jews at such a continual disadvantage with the enemies that that's why they asked the prophet Samuel to anoint a king. And that is how Saul came to be the first king of the Jews. You may remember that in King Saul's reign, the Jews did not have metal iron. Uh, they did not have iron weapons. Saul, his two sons, were killed by who? The Philistines. The book of Samuel tells us that the Philistines had five major cities, which is also corroborated by archaeology. The five cities I just mentioned include Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gat, and Ekron. All of these five cities, cities have been excavated, and we know a great deal about the Philistines because of these excavations. So how could it be that we know so much about these Philistines, but the Torah is telling us about a group of Philistines that lived there much, much earlier? So perhaps one answer is that the first group of Philistines were people who came from Asia. By the way, we Jews are Asians, 
you know that? We didn't come from Europe. We came from Asia. Mesopotamia is where? Africans are the Egyptians. There were not so many Europeans at that time. We did not look a long time ago like we do today. We came from a different continent. Okay, so the people who came to the coastal region looked Asiatic, and that's what we find on certain archaeological findings that go to the period prior to the latter group of Philistines. Those who would have been in the time of Abraham look Asiatic, not like they came from Europe. So the archaeologists say, no, 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 no. You can't call them both Philistines. I said, why not? Because you can't. Okay. So let me ask you a question. Anybody hear of what happened after the Romans conquered Jerusalem and Israel? What did they rename the country? Palestina. The country was called Palestina because the Philistines were extinct. They wanted to erase all memory of the Jews. So if you were a Jew who lived in the land of Israel in the second century, what were you? A Palestinian. If you were Golda Meir, who came here under the time of the British mandate, what did you have in your identity papers? You were Palestinian. If you were here in 1968, and it says Palestinian, who are you? You're a completely different set of people. They use the same name to denote very different groups of people. So if we can do it over 2,000 years of history, why couldn't they do it over 2,000 years of history a long time ago? So my belief is that there were two sets of Palestinians or team or Philistines. One was a group of people who came from Asia and settled near the sea. On the other were a group of invaders who came from the area near Crete who were Europeans who came hundreds of years later. By the way, how many of you know that in the United States we have a group of people called Indians? It's not fair. Who's the real Indians? The ones in the United States or the ones in India? You can't have two groups of people called Indians. doesn't go. Of course you do. You have that in many other times. Why can't we have that here as well? Okay, now let's go to the time of Yaakov. Yaakov comes back from spending time with Uncle Lavan, and where does he settle? He comes to the city of Shechem. By the way, just as an aside, why do the Arabs call it Nablus? Thank you. Thank you. Shechem was the original name. When Yaakov comes to Shechem, it is just in the process of being built up to a major city, and it is on the trading route. It's just over the river of Syria. How do I know it's just in the process of being built up? Because there's a tell in Shechem that was excavated. And that tell that was excavated has what are called cyclopean stones. They're enormous. By the way, people in Avram's time were amazing builders. Amazing. We have walls in Israel that are 30 feet thick and 40 feet high from the time of the Middle Bronze people that go from the time of Abraham. Yaakov did not settle within the settlement of the non-Jews that were in Shechem. 
He bought a piece of land just outside of it for a hundred casita of silver. What is that piece of land that he bought today called? Yosef's tomb. And when you go on top of Mount Gerizim and you look down on the city of Nablus today, you can see Yosef's tomb is outside of where the original tale was. His tomb is probably the best documented tomb of all of the Jewish people in the land of Israel, and it's been that way for over 3,000 years. So we know that that was the property that Yaakov bought from the people of Shechem around 3,500, 3,600 years ago. Okay, now Shechem was a very busy place with lots of traders coming in and out. The story of the sale of Yosef's brothers is a very peculiar story. Why is it peculiar? Because if you pay attention, which if you're living in America, you probably don't, because it doesn't mean anything to you, you realize Yaakov is where? Yaakov is down near Beersheba, or Hebron, somewhere in that area, and he sends his sons to go pasture sheep. Where did they go? Up near Shechem. That's a very, very long way, especially if you don't have a car. Why are they so far north? The answer is, if you understand the cycles of agriculture in Israel, we get rain in our winter, we get no rain in our summer. A few years ago, I was coming on a speaking tour in the United States in July, and I packed an umbrella. And my daughter said to me, what are you doing? I said, it rains in the United States in the summer. They said, do you think we're that stupid? <laughs> they, 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 couldn't, they couldn't remember when they were little kids that it rains here in the summertime. From roughly April until early November, we don't see rain in Israel. So when you don't have artificial irrigation, what happens? The ground dries up, the grass dries up, the plants dry up. You don't have pasture for your sheep. So if it was summertime, down near Beersheba, there's not a lot for the animals to graze on. So what do you do? You send them up to an area that's filled with springs where there's still a lot of grass. So the sons go up north, and that's why Yosef is sold in an area called Dotan and not near Beersheba. But it gets even better. Who is he sold to? He's sold to Yishmaelim. What are Yishmaelim? There's a debate in the commentators. Are Yishmaelim literally the descendants of Yishmael, or are they traders and merchants? They and Shechem were on a trade route. So it made sense that who were they going to sell him to? People who were going back and forth between Mesopotamia and Egypt. And of course they're going to take him down to Egypt because that's where the markets are. They're trading between Mesopotamia and Egypt, Egypt and Mesopotamia. And that is how Je Joseph ends up going down to Egypt. Okay, I'm going to try to uh, make time for this last story because this is so cool. Oh, I forgot one last piece. How much money was he sold for? Try again. 20 pieces of silver. If the Torah indeed were written by people hundreds, if not over a thousand years after the story of Yosef occurred, how in the world would they know what the price of a slave was? Archaeological records tell us that at the time Yosef was sold, indeed the price of a male slave was 20 pieces of silver. A hundred years later, it was more because of inflation. And a few hundred years more, it was even more.
So if you look in the Torah, by the time we get to a few hundred years after Yosef, how many shekels is it? If I'm not mistaken, it's 50 shekels for a good male slave. That just shows you they had inflation in ancient times too. But the point was that only someone who was familiar with those customs of the time would have been able to accurately record the going selling price for the Jewish slave. Okay, so the last part I'm going to end with is about Yosef. If we go backwards from the time of the Exodus to the time of Yosef, around when would Yosef have come to Egypt? Roughly the 1600s before the Common Era. Okay? So Egyptian records describe a foreign people who came from Asia in the 17th century before the Common Era and ruled Egypt for 108 years. How old was Yosef when he died? 110. How old was he when he started being viceroy of Egypt? 30. Right? For 80 years, Yosef was ruling Egypt. And what time did I tell you this would be? Around the 1600s, before the Common Era? Who could these Hyksos people be who were ruling Egypt? Let's keep going. So we know Hyksos means foreign rulers, and their description exactly fits Yaakov's descendants. These people were Semites. They came peaceably to Egypt, and their summer capital was in a place called Avaris. Avaris was excavated by an Austrian archaeologist who was under the supervision of the Egyptians. He found six or seven royal seals with the name Yaakov on them. What a coincidence. For political reasons, the Egyptians covered over the site, and the archaeological findings were written up in a way that would not upset the Muslim authorities. Okay, let's go further. There were some Hyksos pharaohs, one of whom had the name Yaqabaam in the 16th dynasty. Josephus identifies the expulsion of the Hyksos reported in Egyptian records as the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. Now, the Hyksos, according to these records, left around the year 1540 before the Common Era. Do you remember a long time ago I told you there's a discrepancy of 167 years? If you deduct 167 from 1540, around what year are you up to? We're into the 1300s, very close to the time that we date the Exodus from. Okay. Um, Egypt, by the way, like many ancient peoples, never, ever lost a war. Did you know that? Whenever they write up their history, no matter how much they got bloodied, conquered, or anything else, they always won. They always made up their own history. So the Egyptian records say that after Avaris fell... The Egyptian army pursued the fling Hyksos across northern Sinai into southern Canaan, and there is a beautifully detailed colored image of Pharaoh Ahmosa, which means brother of Moses, chasing the Hyksos in his chariot next to the sea. What an interesting coincidence. Isn't that amazing? Okay. So, of course... Archaeologists never identify the Hyksos with the family of Yaakov because the dates of their rule in the Exodus don't work. But if you just do the kinds of calculations that I did with you right now, we don't have to incorrectly date the Exodus according to the Merneptha Stella. 
We can date it according to our consistent, internally consistent records. I'm going to end with one last piece, which many people say, you know what? There, was never, there were never Jews in Egypt. Well, there actually is an inscription on a cave that from the time that the Egyptians were enslaving the Jews that reads, God, save me, using the Hebrew name for God. Interesting. There's also at least one painting that shows Egyptians whipping Asiatic-looking men. Who do you think these people might be? Okay, last thing I'm going to speak about this afternoon is we talk about just before the Exodus, God brought some friendly persuasion to the Egyptians to let the Jews go. What do we call those things? The Ten Plagues. Now, the archaeologists and historians will always tell you we have absolutely no evidence that these plagues occurred. We have no evidence that the Exodus ever occurred. No historical evidence, no records, no archaeology. All right. So there is a papyrus that was found in the early 1800s that dates to the 13th century before the Common Era. This is called the Ipur Papyrus. It's a series of ancient papyri written by an Egyptian sage that describes a terrible catastrophe that affected his people. The Torah in Exodus says there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Ipur Papyrus says plague is throughout the land. Blood is everywhere. Exodus says all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. Whenever we talk about a river in Egypt, what are we talking about? The Nile. Papyrus says the river is blood. Exodus says, and all the Egyptians dug around the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the river. Papyrus says, man shrank from tasting and thirst for water. The Torah describes a plague of hail where it says, and the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree in the field. The commentators say this was no regular hail, and if you saw the definitive work on this, which was with um, uh, Charlton Heston, the hail had fire in it. If were papyrus says, the fire ran along the ground. There was hail and fire mingled with the hail. The ninth plague was that of darkness. Exodus says, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. Papyrus says, the land is not light. The fourth plague was a disease that killed the animals. Exodus says, the hand of God is on your cattle in the field, the horses, the, the donkeys, the camels, the oxen, and the sheep. There shall be grievous disease. Epiwar Papyrus says, all animals, their hearts weep, cattle moan. The last plague that God sent the Egyptians was killing their firstborn sons. Exodus says, the angel of the Lord struck the Egyptians. The papyrus says, he who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. Exodus says, at midnight the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. There was not a house where there was not one dead. There was a great cry in Egypt. Papyrus says, the children of princes are dashed against the walls. The children of the princes are cast down in the streets. There is groaning that is throughout the land, mingled with lamentations. After these plagues, God took the Israelites out of Egypt. Of course, secular archaeologists make no connection whatsoever between this document and the ten plagues as they are described in the Torah. So I was told I had an hour to speak here today. I've done 55 minutes. I'm going to now let all of you ask questions as soon as I summarize the idea that when you talk about archaeology in the Bible, you have to be pretty objective to be willing to change your theories when they discredit your career. 
and to be willing to accept the implications. If the Torah is good for digging in the right places, for finding the right finds, maybe the implication that there is a God in the world and there's a plan for how we're supposed to live is also something we should accept. Thank you. Thank you.